How They Train is brought to you by Pillar Performance. The feed is the official home of Pillar Performance in America, and it's the only place Pillar Performance is available to buy from if you live in America. And so if you're an American who listens to How They Train and hears me go on and on about how much Pillar Performance's triple magnesium has helped my sleep and wants to try it for yourself, then head to thefeed.com and grab yourself some. The best part is my discount code HTT20 works there as well. And that gets you 20% off all of your Pillar Performance products. It also helps support the show. I've been a terrible sleeper my whole life and it got to a point where it was really negatively affecting my training, my work and my relationships. And that's why I started buying Pillar Performance's Triple Magnesium for myself, just to see if it helped. And I seriously can't recommend it enough. If you've ever thought to yourself, I just don't think I fall asleep that easily or I don't feel refreshed when I wake up in the morning like I did every single night and every single morning, then trust me, try Pillar Performance for yourself. Head over to thefeed.com to grab it and use the discount code HTT20 to get yourself 20% off. Rudy Von Berg, welcome to How They Train. Rudy, you've already had a great career. You've podiumed at the Ironman 70.3 World Champs. You're an Ironman and Ironman 70.3 champion. Um, and I'm particularly looking forward to, to hearing about that 70.3 World Champs podium as it was a pretty iconic uh, race. And it was really when you announced yourself on the world stage and I want to say took people by surprise with that performance. Uh, but to get started, I want to start with the back end of, of last season for you um, and then with what's happening this season you really got a lot of visibility and a big surge or a resurgence in pop popularity, I felt, from your role in the Mick Eden training camp series with Lionel Sanders and Colin Chartier over in Kona last year. So I was wondering, could you talk to me a little bit about that, like how all that came about and what it was like behind the scenes? Because both Lionel and Colin have talked about how it was a pretty crazy camp on the island over there leading into Kona. Uh, yeah, I feel like it, it was mostly the two of them. And uh, I just joined on some sessions, so it wasn't really because they were training together in Tucson for a couple months at least before that, and I was in Boulder. So even though we were on, all under the same coach, I don't feel like it was really uh, all three of us type thing. It was more them two, and then I kind of joined here and there. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure about that surge in popularity thing uh about link to that but um i mean it, it was originally i was hoping yeah all three of us would have some uh some camps along the years but uh lionel's not coached by mccall anymore and uh colin is in boulder right now we were planning on uh doing our uh build for ironman texas together but colin came into a couple issues and he's not doing texas anymore so yeah, that's kind of nature of training, I guess, sometimes too. So how did the relationship with yourself and Mikhail Eden come about? How did you start getting coached by him? Uh, so it was around the beginning of last year, beginning of 2022. I was with my previous coach for four years and I was going into into the fifth year. And um, everything was going well with that coach. There's nothing to say on that side. He, uh, as soon as I started with him, I kind of got next level in 2018. That's when I started winning races. Uh, and then 19, 2020, and then COVID. That was a little unfortunate. 
I just felt like really the only reasons are I just wanted a, a new, to try something new, um, something fresh, uh, different training stimulus, different types of workouts, kind of give myself a chance of going next level, essentially. That, that were reasons all of the above. Um, and for there was no reason that I wasn't happy with uh, what he was, what we were doing together or that I didn't trust him anymore. It was really just, yeah, try something new, try to see if a new stimulus can, uh, yeah, get me next level, essentially. So I was coached by uh, my previous coach, Luke Van Leer, till Ironman France, because that was my first Ironman under him. And so since he was an Ironman guy, I kind of wanted to at least have him coach me till my first Ironman with him. And it was planned, you know, the result of the Ironman didn't matter in my decision. Uh, and then right after that, started with uh, Mikal. And how come Mikal? How did you land on, on him as the, the next guy? Um, trying to remember. Um, I, I think he just kind of came onto the map and uh, of coaches with uh, being coached with uh, coaching Colin and Lionel. I think that was kind of the beginning of it. And uh, I knew I've known Colin for many years now. So, um, yeah, we just knew of him coaching. And then, uh, obviously, the success of Gustav and Christian and kind of that method. Um, I was very interested in uh, learning more about it and maybe actually, yeah, doing it in training. And um, I talked to him and uh, we're about the same age. You know, there's a good contact and uh, figured that it could be a good way to, yeah, try, try that method. And so what were the differences that you noticed in your training when you were training under Luke Van Leerd, for people who don't know, two-time Ironman world champion in 1996 and I think 1999 was the second one, and then and then Mikhail Eden? I think it was 97 and 99, or maybe it was in 96, the first one. I know, Yeah, I know he definitely won 96. I just couldn't remember. On his whether, first try. I couldn't remember whether it was 99 or 2000, the second one, but I think it was 99. Definitely 99, the yeah. second one. Well, 96 yeah. and 99 for sure then. Uh-huh. Yeah, beast. Um, yeah, what were the differences you noticed between um, his coaching style and his sessions and the way way you guys were training together versus Macau? Yeah, it's uh, very different, I'd say. Um, I'd say Luke's training was quite different from what most top professionals are doing. And Macau's training is more similar to what most professionals are doing. So with Luke, it was basically a lot of uh, just aerobic endurance, not even upper aerobic, like uh, aerobic threshold type, just uh, zone two. So easy, easy training, easy volume. And then you would, and he works on the VLA a lot. So the way your body uses the en- its energy. And so he, and he looks at that number, we test for that to balance it and uh and you don't have a lot of threshold lt2 or race pace type work it's kind of more sprinkling it at the right time when you get closer to a race and it's also more periodized in a sense because at the beginning of a year you wouldn't do too much volume right because you would try to keep the biggest volume weeks that your body has the capability of doing 
for when you're really trying to build for your A race of the season. So you, you want to do that right in Mar- in January, February, March, or April. And uh, with McCall, it's very, it's kind of consistent, more higher volume work with consistent uh, intensity, uh, LT1 or LT2. But it's very repetitive on that threshold type work. And you could say it's controlled intensity, but for me, compared to what Luke gave me, it's still a lot of intensity. Even though we do control it with lactate, it is, uh, yeah, it definitely feels like a more in, a higher intensity type of training. And so what is the difference in volume between the two? How many like hours per week would you average with Luke Van Leer and, and how many do you average at the moment with Mikhail? Uh, I'd say the average would be a, a, is a little higher with McCall. I'm probably averaging maybe around uh, 28 hours right now, or since in the last what, six, seven, eight weeks. And with Luke, a tad under uh, in the average because you would have those build weeks that would be a little lower. But then I would still hit with Luke on the bigger builds, and frequently in the year, those uh, 28 to even 30 hour weeks. And so when you were training with Colin and Lionel um, and you were all being coached by Mikael and um, you, were, you guys were over at Kona doing a camp together and, and even before that, was the training you were doing the same as them? You just weren't doing it all with them or were you doing quite different stuff? Uh, it was the same, but really if you, if you see the sessions, I only did a few sessions with them. A, a couple of the main sessions we did, I do remember in Kona, that was in the last, what, two and a half yeah, I got to Kona two and a half weeks before the race. So um, those sessions were maybe yeah, about two weeks out. We did a four by 30 minute, uh, three to four hour ride. And um, yeah, it was the same session. I remember Lionel was just crushing it off the front. Colin was trying to stay with him, but not really. And then I was last. <laughs> and uh <laughs> But I averaged, I did my highest watts for a five, four by 30 ever. Not that I did that session that many times, but that was much higher than usual. I did it, uh, I averaged around 295 watts for, for those, the two hours. And I was still dropped. And uh, I do remember another session, it was a, a threshold session, LT2, and Joe Skipper joined. And it was about, I can't remember exactly, 75 minutes worth of LT2. And I got destroyed too, even though I was doing my numbers. I was around, what, 310, I think, 315. And those guys were just smashing it. But also I had the lowest lactate of everyone, which uh, physiologically I was using less energy, which in the end we could see in Kona. They probably overdid it a little, Colin and Lionel, and they both had a bad day. And then uh, a third session was a brick. Maybe that was part of, yeah, a break. Can't remember exactly the LT1. And then the the run was about, uh, it was 80 minutes, I think, off the bike with most of the LT1. And they were running about 340 a K, 340, 345. And I was at 347 average, I think, which was a great run for me because my heart rate was controlled. We went down the energy lab. You know, it, it would be around the... Uh, 150 heart rate which at 347 in the heat was quite good and really low lactate so i was kind of, i was starting to get into pretty good shape 
um, in those two weeks before Kona. And so those two boys obviously had um, relatively poor results at Kona, um, especially relative to how good they are. Uh, and you ultimately had the, the best day of the three. Did you get a sense in the lead up that you were like, you know, these guys are overdoing it a bit too much, even I may be overdoing it a bit too much, or you didn't feel that at all? Um, I mean, it's always very easy to say after the fact for them to. I mean, Colin has told me, yes, he, he definitely just left left the race out in training. And it is clear now that Lionel did the same. Because also, Colin was telling me from their training camp that Lionel would always do a bit extra and would kind of always try to push, push, push. And um, I'm definitely, I think, I'm learning from their mistakes in my buildup this year for Texas in two weeks. I don't think I overdid it. I think I actually was perfect pace-wise. On that day where they ran three, between 340, 345k, and I was dropped, I mean, I let them go, essentially. I was, it's not like I was hurting, really, when they when they went away on the run. I I, just, I even had a post about it. It was just like I was happy to let them go. And I just wanted to run my LT1 and not overdo it, and our, my pace was already quite good. So there was no need to kind of do the, that extra I ended up having an okay day, but I kind of messed it up in the last 12K, which you would say is pretty normal for an Ironman, but I was just getting really low on sodium and kind of starting to feel dizzy and kind of feel like you want to sleep. And that was a mistake I did times 10 in Cozumel, where I spent, uh, I don't know, 15 hours in the hospital after that race. So I'm uh, definitely looking forward to feeling better at the end of marathons this year, especially in Texas coming up. Your result there sort of says a bit about the standard of um, male professional Ironman racing at the moment where you do 8-12 on a pretty tough day at Kona and uh, and you come 20th, you know, like 10 years ago, that wins you that race. And I know that doesn't matter. Like it's all relative, but uh-huh. God, I, I looked at it the same where I'm like, oh God, you, Rudy's had a pretty good race there and he's come 20th. I, I, I remember distinctly yeah, thinking that. I agree because... On the swim, I was okay. A minute down, that was not a good swim for me. But in all in all, that's nothing. On the bike, average two hundred seventy watts, four fifteen. Okay, it was it was a mostly favorable day on the bike, but still, you know, I had a, yeah, I had a solid bike. Didn't lose that much time to the to Gustav's time. And then I ran a three hundred two, which okay isn't the best run, but also it's not a terrible run. It's it's all you could say it's overall solid, yeah. And then so twentieth is not that great, <laughs> considering I think. But uh, yeah, it's I mean it's definitely every year I think it's the levels going up just a little, and uh, well we definitely know over three hours is not going to cut it, or even over two fifty. But um, yeah. And so after that Kona, yourself and Colin stay being coached by uh, Mikael Eden, uh, brother of of Gustav Eden, and. Lionel leaves. What what happened from your perspective at that time? Um, well, I mean, it seems like Lionel is very kind of reactive in a way to uh, results and his emotions or his beliefs on training. And uh, also, well, to be fair, he did have much more time with McCall. So, I mean, he made his own judgment of what was right for him. It seemed at the beginning, like working with McCall, he was doing really well. I do remember one of his first races, uh, Indian Wells, at the end of 2021. 
where he seems to be to be really strong and uh, improving quickly. And also in Ironmans, he started to, to kind of nail some better Ironmans. For me, starting in June, I didn't really have the time to judge how it's working for me or to absorb the training uh, to, or to, you know, just to do multiple blocks to really see how it is. Because when I started with him, I was extremely weak. I was coming out of uh, had this stomach bug, this stomach parasite that kind of killed me for 10 days, lost weight. Uh, it was kind of a mono part two for me, which was very unlucky at that time and bad timing. So that was the yeah middle of last year. So kind of coming back from that, you know, I was very, I only had a few, I had three weeks of training for Collins Cup. Considering I feel like I did quite well at Collins Cup. And then I had just a few more weeks for Dallas. And then I had three more weeks to Kona. So, you know, it really wasn't enough to really judge on the effects of the training. Uh, I definitely didn't perform how I wanted in any of those races. But uh, but before Kona, I was starting to see, okay, glimpses of... Uh, I'm definitely starting to be pretty solid. Um, then Cozumel at the end of the year. Well, then I got sick in St. George. Just a stupid uh, three-day thing, but I had a fever the night before. So I had to pull out of St. George. So I wanted to keep on being coached by McCall, have a, a longer period of training to really see, okay, if, if I can get next level with this type of training and stick with it and uh, work with McCall. Because also McCall is uh, on the younger side of being a coach. He's also still learning. He can learn from us as well from what we feel like is the right stimulus. And uh, so it goes both ways. So I've had January, February, March, and then most of April. And that was the reason also why I didn't do Oceanside, for example, and just wanted to start in Texas, was to just really get in the time, you know, consistent training, no uh, distraction. And uh, now we're almost there, two weeks away from Texas. And did you and Colin Chartier have any conversation at that point about like, sticking sticking with um Mikael? um not really i mean we always talk about coaching just as an interesting or coaching and training as an interesting subject to talk about uh colin was uh he was gonna stay with Mikael. there was no question in his mind and more or less same for me i i want to i wanted to to test it out longer you know i didn't have the time the, the second part of last year as i said to really judge so but i will judge all the results race results is, is what's gonna be the judge it doesn't matter if i'm doing these massive sessions that are really good numbers for me you know racing is is the only thing that matters because i'm saying that because with luke for example i would always be kind of underconfident because you wouldn't have that much race space work in training and you would always feel kind of like oh i don't feel if i don't know if i'm ready over the years, I learned to be confident under that type of training because I've seen that throughout the races, I was always really good in racing. But the training didn't really necessarily give you that confidence. With Mikhail, somewhat the opposite because you have more more race-based work. But uh, yeah, race results will, will tell the tale. And so you've had this, like you just spoke about, solid four to five months of training under Mikhail, Um after your your build before Kona um, this year where you're racing in a couple of weeks at Ironman Texas. How have you found the training for the last four to five months? Can you talk to me about this build? Yeah, more um, 
Yeah, I had a bit of a build uh, in December, then there was a little stop. Just went skiing for a week. But in my head, it kind of feels like... Then it restarted, like, mid-January. But, um... Uh, you you meant yeah the build yeah I mean it's the it's it's just it was consistent uh, consistent weeks of um, fairly big volume in all three sports uh, a lot of uh, LT two work and then we started introducing LT one work there's not that much to say in the sense that it's kind of the similar weeks every week just kind of building those specific workouts. I did have a little interruption on the run. I had a bit of inflammation in my knee. And that's also something to learn also, for example, with his training. He gives, for me, quite a bit of run volume, coupled with those longer threshold runs. And my legs are not super strong in that sense. I kind of get sore in my quads usually after intensity sessions. And to run... To keep the volume somewhat high the, all the days after the sessions, my legs don't really recover that well. So I'm running on kind of like sore legs. So I think the kind of all those muscles in the quads starting pulling on the knee a little. And I'm usually very careful. So that's why it, at this point it seems fine. I only stopped running 10 days and I uh, got an MRI pretty quick and uh, I didn't really run on pain much. And now I'm two weeks back running. And uh, yeah, for now, fingers crossed. No, nothing, uh, no more pain, but uh, yeah, things to learn for that. And uh, yeah, as I said, hours wise, I was doing between uh, 26 and 30 hours consistent. Everyone looks at sort of Christian Blumenfeld and Gustav Eden as um, the best runners in long course triathlon. That's really where they win their races. They are very complete triathletes that gets missed a little bit, I think. But that's interesting that you said you're doing more run volume um, with like quite a lot of time spent at, at a higher intensity than what you're used to. Um, and you assume that everything Mikael brings to the table, he's learnt under the, the Norwegian system. Um, what have you noticed? Like what are, the, what are the sessions that you're doing? Are they different to what you think other people are doing? Is there a reason that Christian and Gustav are running so much better than everyone else? And, and have you found yourself, uh, have you found your run improving because of it? Uh yeah, that's tough. So I think the reason their run is better than everyone else is also they've been doing this work for so many years now and they've kind of found found the right way of um of adding up those sessions for them. I, I just think the the way you add up sessions for a specific athlete, it can be quite different from an athlete to another. You just have to figure out kind of what's right for different athletes. And uh, they've been doing what's right for them for many years now. They've just building, building, building. And uh, yeah, just do, doing doing everything around training right as well. They, they seem very focused in what they do. For me, I think it's a mix. I mean, honestly, I'm still kind of figuring out what's the best way for me under this method. I don't think doing only threshold runs and easy runs is the best stimulus. I think you have to add some different uh, paces rather than just those two. And uh, so there's, yeah, you got to kind of tailor that program to the athlete. Um, I don't know if this really answers your question, but uh, I'm, I, I'm still a little confused about exactly what would be the best for me. Was a big motivation for you when you started 
being coached by Mikael because you saw what Gustav and Christian were doing? Uh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you have the best in the world and you think you could, uh, be getting the, the same, uh, training than they are, you kind of know you're on the right, but it's also, it's not really just the same training. It's also Mikhail knows, you know, how to implement that training correctly, even just kind of like your lifestyle around training or nutrition or just, uh, yeah, just eating enough around training and just all this kind of simple things, but it's, it's all about being able to do the training as well. Right. Can you talk to me in a little bit more detail about that? When you say the lifestyle and, and the, the simple things you have to do to, to be able to do the training, what are the things that you guys are implementing and talking about? Um, well, as far as, um, just training nutrition and around, he just makes sure we eat enough and have a, very high carb intake during our workouts especially the important sessions you know he's he tells me okay 120 grams an hour test this out or uh, just make sure you you take that and test the nutrition in this workout especially when we're getting close to an Ironman on the easy days you know he just puts in the notes like he was like eat a ton you know <laughs> it's simple things but really when we're training this much I've found it for for myself too. The more I eat, the more I drink, it's just, you just feel better, you know, and you're just able to back up the training. And sometimes you just think it's just too many carbs or it's just, yeah, too much. But uh, really the more you eat, the more, the better you're going to feel. And um, in terms of lifestyle, I mean, it's just the the recovery. It's simple. Just the sleep is the most important, but just kind of, it's a full-time job plus plus you know it's it's your life kind of uh every day is kind of structured around those workouts which take all day long because he has me doing he i have the all three sports every single day pretty much so it's uh pretty intense every day and uh yeah just make sure to nail the the simple things essentially that usually in in our life and sometimes it's not that easy to nail the simple things day in, day out. And so if we go back in time a little bit now to what I talked about in the, in the introduction, your 2019 Ironman 70.3 World Championship race, which is, I mean, you've won a lot of races, including in that year, um, and, and, you know, you've won Ironmans. But to me, that's still the the race that sticks out for my mind when, when I think of, of Rudy Von Berg, the athlete, like what's your best performance? Well, I just think of that day straight away. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a performance I think about regularly is like, wow, that was like, no one expected that. That was a pretty special performance. When you took the lead um, at the back end of the bike um, up, up that mountain, I think everyone watching was like, Whoa, no, like who's this guy a little bit? Uh, uh, so I'm sure you, you feel the same about it being a, a special day. That year for you was a really impressive year. You were sort of like winning or podiuming every single race you were doing um, consistently. You were you were easily one of the the top three or four uh, like seventy point three triathletes that year. Do you think that you're a better triathlete now than what you were at that point in twenty nineteen? It's hard to say. Um, I haven't showed that last year. And I'm hoping this year will be uh, kind of the year 
I feel like uh, since Mono, essentially, that was uh, kind of a, a little inflection point in the last couple of years. You know, in a career, you're always going to have a few ups and downs. And that was definitely a little bit of a down. And uh, so I had Mono, then I came back from that. And then, yeah, I had that stomach parasite six months later. The problem wasn't really getting sick, but it was losing weight, losing muscle. You just feel so weak when you come back. And uh, and then switching to McCall. You know, I don't know. There was just kind of ups and downs like that, which made that to this point. And I felt the same at the beginning of last year. I feel like I'm kind of on the comeback and kind of trying to get back to prove I'm one of the best. So, um, yeah, what were you saying? Twenty Back to 2019. Um Oh, yeah, if I'm at the same level now or if I'm better. Um, yeah, it's hard to say, honestly. I'm going to have to prove that I am better this year. But um, to this point, it's almost like, yeah, I have to I have to prove prove my, my or get my best level back and better because the sport is evolving. But, uh, yeah, with Luke, it was definitely a very good year. As you said, I don't think I was off the podium. I was not off the podium all year long. And... Um, I uh, people were surprised, I guess, about my finish there, but uh, I definitely wasn't. I mean, earlier in the year, I won the European champs in front of uh, Javier Gomez, and uh, that was one of my best performances ever. Actually, my uh, I think actually that was my best in front of Worlds in Nice because uh, just the watts on the bike were exceptional. I rode alone, a whole group behind me with. You know, guys like Florian Anger were very strong on the bike. Gomez was sitting in. There was like eight guys. And I just went off the front, had exceptional watts. And then off that, still ran, uh, what was it, a 111 high. And Gomez that day, he was, when he was kind of back in his WTS uh, phase, and he was consistent top five in those World Championship Series races. So he, he was the closest best level in 2019. He ran a 107 off the bike, came up 11 seconds short, and I won the race. So then that was in the end of June, so two months before 70.3 Worlds. So I was definitely getting to a very high level there. And uh, so I did expect and was confident in Nice, especially with the added fact that the course suited me better in Nice. And uh, yeah, people always talk about the downhill to downhill. You know, I came to the front in the second part, which is somewhat true, but I also was already fourth uh, at the top of the climb, very close to the lead. I had really good watts uh, up the main climb, Col de Vence, and uh, I was definitely right up there in position to take the lead on the downhill. And then, uh, yeah, as we know, my run was solid, but not exceptional. And uh, yeah, Gustav won, and Alistair was right in front of me. I remember that Elsinore race where Gomez ran like 107.40 or something to... To yeah, just exactly. lose to you. That was a that was actually, and there was heaps of good guys in that race. You know, he, like that was a stacked top ten. Um, that I remember that race clearly because I thought probably what you thought. I thought, oh, Rudy might be on for the seventy point three world champs here, um, and ultimately, you know, you, I think that that seventy point three world champs in twenty nineteen, like you beat Christian Blumenfeld that day and a Sebastian Keenley who was in great form. Like you, that was. That was a pretty insane race for you. I think that 
now, if anyone went back, like say if someone got into triathlon in 2022 or 2021 mm-hmm. um, over COVID and they went back and were interested in in like, oh, who who's done well in the past and they read that result sheet, they'd go like Gustav Eden won that the 2019 World Championships. Alistair Brownlee came second. Christian Blumenfeld came fourth. Sebastian Kinley came fifth. <laughs> Rudy Von Berg came third. And I think they would be surprised. But back then, it wasn't really a surprise per se it was maybe it wasn't a surprise to see you at the front of a race because we were very used to seeing you at the front of races we just hadn't seen you at the front of a world championship race that was sort of a surprise um and yeah i I mean i wonder if if you said to someone who had just got into the sport say last year or the year before well rudy von berg i think he's capable of of winning or podium a 70.3 world championships or an ironman world championships this year they, they might be surprised by that. Uh, my question is, does it motivate you? Do you think about that kind of thing? Do you do you get motivated by the thought of like going back and, and getting to the top of those big races to show people you can? Or is it all sort of like intrinsic motivation? Um, I mean, it's, it's both really. Um, I'm definitely super motivated to... But it's also not like only past glory. I mean, I was third once, you know. It's not like I'm a triple world champion and I'm trying to get back to that level, right? I'm still fairly young, even though I am 30 at the end of this year. So I guess halfway in my career, maybe you could say. Even though in triathlon, long distance, uh, in, in your 30s, you are very strong and improving and can be at the top of your game. So I'm definitely counting on that. But um, yeah, it's kind of a, as a first step, yeah, get back to at least that level and then more. I mean, I'm definitely chasing a world championship uh, title uh, at one point, hopefully soon. Um, and that was kind of the idea of changing to McCall too for coaching is really okay. I've done four years, four and a half years with Luke. It was really good. Um but you got to try something different to give yourself a chance at one point. Maybe it won't work. It is a risk. But uh, a risk I was willing to take at that point to yeah, change the train stimulus and uh, hopefully get next level. So this year, there is the Ironman World Championship back in Nice. And that's definitely a location that motivates me a lot. Especially that, I mean, in the end, we do triathlon for fun, right? And for me, that's just a fun race. It's a fun bike course. It's exciting. It's, um, yeah, <laughs> fun. I'm going to use the same word, but uh, the, the run is pretty boring. <laughs> the bike is a, is a really epic course, which rewards the best all-around cyclists. It's not just ups. It's not just downs. You really have a lot of, uh, of everything. You know, you have a lot of flats. You have some rolling sections. You have some longer uphills, some steep uphills, and a few technical downhills, and the fast sections. You know, it's, it's a perfect time trial course i'd say you you've skipped ahead that was what i was gonna like build the conversation towards and and finish with this but let's just go straight into it now that you've started talking about it will you be targeting that is that sort of the main race you want to target this year yeah yeah by far yeah that's the number one race and that's why i'm doing texas i have to qualify first texas we have there's five slots but the two main guys hansen and skipper already have their slot so essentially, you'd think they'll be in the top five. So essentially, top seven get the slot. So I really should get a slot if I don't mess it up. So that's objective number one. Number two, do really well in the race. 
at least podium. And uh, yeah, go for Nice. And then, I mean, I've just seen that over like the last couple of days, Sam Laidlow has been on the course. Um, he's ridden almost the entire bike course there. Do you think this is an Ironman World Championships, obviously because it's not at Kona, it's at a new course. Um, do you think this is a course that will be won or lost on that bike course? Mm, I think the run will still be the the end the deciding factor for sure. I think everyone is, uh, and partly because of me in the downhill in 2019, because there's there has been a lot of talk about that. But um, I think people are over-focusing on the downhill part. I mean, it's 180 Ks of, you know, you're going to have to push power for most of it. Okay, there are a few downhills where you're not pedaling, and the technical aspects is important. But even on those downhills, I mean, why was I so good also on the downhill in 2019 was also because I knew exactly how to pace it, and I had energy left for the downhill, and you still have to push a lot of power in those downhills, especially that those downhills are not really downhills in a lot of sections. They're TT sections that are somewhat false flat, but since the road is so narrow, it feels like a downhill because you still have to stop pedaling on corners but they're still power sections. And, you know, yeah, as I said, the majority of the course is still just going to be the strongest cyclist where the technical aspect doesn't matter. So it's more about knowing how to, yeah, just pace yourself on a hillier course. And, uh, yeah, as I said, downhills are, are, are a little part of it, but, uh, and also more guys, I think will be more prepared, uh, this time around. And, um, yeah, I mean, the guys who who are really bad technically, yeah, they won't be able to catch up that from riding the course a few times. But uh, I'm not too worried about the European athletes. They know how to handle their bike. And uh, some of the American athletes, yeah, will be at a bit of a disadvantage. But, uh, yeah, as I said, uh, downhills, I don't think will be the, the biggest factor. Dan Plews is one of the world's very best triathlon coaches. What Dan has done to transform Chelsea Sodaro into a world champion has been simply amazing to watch. And Dan is one of the very few world-class triathlon coaches who makes his training accessible to the public to use for themselves. It's an online coaching community called Endure IQ. It's a platform that has hundreds of training plans written by Dan himself to suit each individual. For example, if you only have time for six to eight hours training because of work and family, there's programs for you, written by Dan. If you have time for 15 hours, then again, there's plans for you, written by Dan. And if you want to really take things to the next level and train 25 hours a week like a professional, again, there's plans for you, written by Dan. The best thing about it is that there is so many training plans that no matter who you are or what you do, you'll find one that's exactly right for you. And it costs so much less than what you, you what you would pay for getting coached by a much, much lower level coach at only $25 per week. And Dan has given us a discount code. So if you use the code HTT15 when you sign up, you'll get 15% off, making it even cheaper again. Also, probably the best part is you get direct access to Dan Blues himself to ask any questions you want about your training, your nutrition, your racing, etc. via a weekly webinar and an online forum. So if you want to take your training and racing to the next level and work with one of the very select world-class triathlon coaches we have, 
for a fraction of the price of what they would usually charge, then head over to an Endure IQ page. Um, the link is in the description. Use the code HTT15 for that extra little discount and get stuck in. So for people who don't know, do you know this course so well and can talk with it with such authority because of that 2019 race or is there other reasons why? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's where it's, I, I grew up riding those roads. So it's, that's my life of cycling. That's where I learned to love cycling. And, uh, that's where I, I used to ride around. That's, it's the nice course. So I know those roads uh, very well. I mean, some of those downhills for the main downhill of 70.3 worlds of 2019, which is the same in, at the end of the course in, uh, for the full distance. I I would usually never do that that training ride on the downhill. I would do the downhill going up. So things like that, for example, I very rarely did actually that downhill section. And before 2019 Worlds, well, obviously I knew the course, so I I started training on that downhill. But I only did it really, I don't know, maybe I did it between 8 and 10 times before the race so it's enough to kind of know the corners but it's not like i did in my entire childhood either i would do it on the uphill part but apart from that yeah i mean i, I know yeah I just grew up right riding on those roads do you think that this year's ironman world championships with the way the course is and and the tough bike ride do you think that the guys who are a little further down in the swim lionel sanders cam worth um sam long for example do you think that they are out of this race and can't win it? Or do you think that the course actually makes it uh, more likely that they can get back into the race? Yeah, I'd say it's the opposite. Yeah, it's your second. Uh, the, it's it's more of a, the, the drafting won't have as much of an effect. If you're, if you're down on the swim, you can catch up on that bike. And even though I did say there are rolling sections where in the 12-meter drafting uh, distance could have uh, the group effect definitely you know there's long uphills the drafting is gone technical sections as well steep uphills yeah it's definitely a more of a more of a fair race course which i think is super exciting i mean you're gonna have guys kind of all over the place and uh, really the strongest cyclist is gonna come out on top and then uh, have to back it up with the marathon which is very flat very straight very boring it's pretty on the sea on the seashore but it's uh, definitely mentally very difficult because you are doing just five and a half k completely straight out you turn around and you can literally see the end of the five and a half k and you do that out and back four times it's pretty pretty difficult mentally (laughs) i was dying a thousand deaths and uh just mentally i was feeling fairly good uh, when i won there uh, last year in june but uh yeah can you talk to us those of us who don't really know the the course as well as you um obviously a new ironman world championships course is is exciting in a way we all know the kona course so well like everyone can picture it and when you're talking about it knows exactly the points you're talking about Mm -hmm. can you talk to me about these mountains um the uphill sections on on this course can you like walk me through when the key points are across the 180Ks, like how long the climbs are, how steep they are, which are like the harder ones, mm-hmm. which which ones aren't actually that hard. Can you sort of yeah. make me feel like I know the course? Right. So um, the beginning of the ride is 10 to 15Ks completely flat. 
to get out of Nice and kind of head towards the foothills. Then uh, this first part is exactly the same as 70.3 worlds. Then you hit some very steep hills. They're about, they must go over 10% for, you know, five, 600 meters. And you have kind of three of those. Yes, you have yeah three really steep hills. Then you have some uh, a longer false flat section, false flat uphill, maybe another fifteen k's into a a false flat downhill into the main long climb of the course. So at that point, you're at around what k forty fifty, and uh, it's about a fifty minute climb if you're riding you know at between three hundred and three hundred and ten watts. And uh, it's pretty steady. It averages probably 6%. Yeah, it's right around 6% average for a 50-minute climb. So that's fairly long, but uh, it's steady and it's not that steep. It's steep enough that it's you're, you're not in arrow. I mean, you're probably climbing on... I was at least not in arrow, climbing on my base bars. But um, you're rolling pretty good, but again, 6% is... Is still fairly steep so uh, it's not like you need any special easy gear for that so then you're at the top of the main climb that's the col, col de l'ecre you're at about yeah it's hard to know exactly the total k's but maybe uh yeah 65k 70k and then you kind of have a long plateau up there uh you're at about a thousand meters altitude so you came, yeah, essentially you came, yeah, from the seashore and you climbed a thousand meters. And um, you have a long section up there where you have some little downs, some little ups. With the most significant one is uh, 3Ks at 4 or 5%. And uh, yeah, you go for, yeah, like 30Ks like that up there. So that's a lot of TT position in the in the big ring. Uh, some some minor cornering but all that is not really that technical and then you get into the um, last third of the course which is a dominant of downhills yeah it's the most of downs are all packed in that part with with one major hill though in the middle still yes down and then the major hill is similar it's another what six seven k's uh around six percent to finally join the last downhill of 70.3 worlds of 2019, which is, uh, it's not that steep down, right? Uh, if people remember from that race, it's not like you're going that fast, but it's just narrow and very twisty. It's, and even, as I said, when you hit the part, which is more of a flat or false flat, it's just really narrow. So, you know, in TT, if you're going 45 Ks an hour, even on the flat section, and you hit corners, well, you're going to have to stop pedaling for that. And then the same last 10, 15K flat back into town. Yeah, it's probably more like a solid 15Ks. So that's still, I mean, it's significant. Another 15K flat before hitting T2. And then I, I guess Gustavine won that race on a road bike in 2019. Will people be... Like, will people just be using the exact same equipment, the exact same bikes, the exact same aerodynamics, helmets, wheels, etc., as they would at Kona? Or will people be doing things differently to try and get an advantage? Mm, I don't see how you could... Well, especially Kona doesn't have the disc because that's maybe one of the decisions you would take for that course is do you want to 
use a disc wheel or just keep the pair of 80s. Last year, I just went for the pair of 80s because, okay, you lose two watts with an 80 in the rear instead of a disc wheel. But then I felt it was just would feel more balanced for the downhills. And uh, that's really the only reason. But I knew they were fairly close in terms of speed. So I didn't really overthink it too much. Um, for this year, I do have a different wheel sponsor and they don't have 80s. So Kadex has, uh, they have disc or they have their four spoke or they have a pair of 65s. I think 65 is a little too shallow of a rim height. So I'll likely go for the disc and uh, four spoke, but uh, this is something to be decided yet still. I have to see how it feels on downhills. Um, but uh, overall, I think to answer to your question, I think it will be very similar setups to Kona. I mean, you're still going to be full aero setup. And the difference with the 2019 course is that you do have that long kind of rolling section in the middle from K60 to K or K70 to K110-ish. You have 40Ks of pretty fast rolling where um, you're going to want to be fast and arrow. So, and add the, the first 15, the last 15, they're flat, that's 30. That's that's already like essentially 70, 80 Ks of flat in the course. And so for this for this year's Ironman World Championships, who do you think of as the big favorites? Like who, if you could take your own experience like your own want to win the race out of out of the equation which i know is going to be very hard and and think of it as as someone more watching the race who do you who do you consider the big favorite for this year this year's race and who are you looking at as the guys who will be super competitive on this course this year um it's kind of hard to say because i don't know exactly who is um because for example i'm thinking of a, a guy like magnus but I remember him being quite bad at cornering, even in a, such a, in a simple course like St. George 2021 when I was riding with him. We were off the front. And even in just those simple corners, he was really slow. So if you're that bad, and I'm, I don't know how he would be, but if you're that bad, you're yeah, you're, I said you, the downhills are not going to be a huge factor, but if you're that bad, yeah, they might be. <laughs> so he definitely has the watts, but... Uh, so I'm thinking of a guy like him, but again, a question mark for that part. And uh, and this is valid, actually, for a lot of athletes. Um, Sam Laidlow, I mean, he grew up in France, or so he should be fine. Um, so I'm guessing he'll be one. He should be one to watch. There shouldn't be any problem on the technical side. And uh, this, the, I feel like the hills are not steep enough that really weight, you know, you'd have to be like a light climber guy that won't really affect it, affect the, the thing. Uh, Jan, he didn't seem too confident about his, uh, his uh, technical riding, I guess we'll call it, at least in 2019. He's going for it this year. I mean, I'm sure he'll be a factor. Um, the Norwegians are not doing it. I'm trying to think. A guy like Florin Anger has been consistent as a German. I'm sure he'll have no no technical problems. Um, yeah, I'll put me in there, myself in there. Um, some of the Americans might have uh, trouble. I think a guy like Sam Long 
Wait, is he even going for that race this year? He doesn't know yet. He uh, he, he doesn't not, know. I think my uh, I don't know. I've had a few conversations with him about it off air. Uh, I think that's how he would summarize it. He's not sure. I think in an ideal world, yeah. he'd love to go and win the Ironman World Championships this year. And <laughs> I know that him and his coach, Dan Pluza, are, are working towards, you know, um, battling the problems he's had at the, the back end of Ironman runs. But I, I don't know right. if he's actually confirmed to do it this year or not. I think he um, he's also looking at some um, challenge and, and PTO races that he's keen to, keen to target. Right. Yeah. So if he was there, I think he's uh, he isn't too bad technically. So he, he could be um pretty decent on a course. And he's used to in Boulder and Colorado here doing a lot of mountain rides, even though the descents are quite different here. And uh, I'm probably missing a few guys. But uh, who, who uh, would you have in mind when I'm talking about these guys? Well, a question I had for you there is um, the Norwegians have not necessarily come out and said they're definitely not doing it. And a lot of people you talk to will say, no, I think they are going to do it. Um, and then some people will say, no, I don't think they are going to do it. And you sort of huh. haven't used the word think there. You've said they're not doing it, which is the, actually the first time I've really heard that so concrete. Is that because you know things that, that I don't know? Uh, no, actually, I don't think so. Um, in my head, they're not doing it, but I actually don't even know why. Because now that you mentioned that, I do remember Christian saying, it was one of the two saying, they weren't sure if they were going to go. And the other one was saying, for sure, I'm not doing it, if I remember well. And I can't remember which, if it was Gustav or Christian. But they seem quite focused. I don't think, no, because uh, with Olaf, they're like super focused on their return to 2024 Paris. I don't see how they would be doing an Ironman. I don't think it's in their program. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I talked to Bjorn Giesman, um yesterday the coach of like Patrick oh, yeah, Lang and Cat Matthews and he he's convinced they are doing it he said they will be doing it so it's it's actually uh, quite a fun little talking point I like that they haven't come out and said we're definitely not a hundred percent they've said like we're targeting the Olympics um so it's going to be hard to do both so we'll just wait and see type thing I actually I think it's quite fun um but the, I guess the thing I have I I have questions about Gustav's ability to compete at the Olympics I know he loves it and he would love to win it I think Christian is um, right, rightfully, you know, a top three favorite for it. But I'd, I'd be curious on your opinion. Do you think that Gustav can even potentially win the Olympics? And are you like me and think, well, come and win two Ironman World Championships in that year and try and become a three-time world champion instead of spending that two years to come sixth at the Olympics? Yeah, I mean, I tend to agree with you, um, but he's had from his childhood always this dream of the Olympics. So um, I'm sure he would probably regret it if he didn't try to go for that. But um, I mean, I never like to talk about people, especially such a talented guy as Gustav, and say, oh, they can't do it. Because, I mean, he can. If he gets it right, I think he does have the tools to win an Olympics. However, he hasn't proved it yet to really be consistently you know in the top five positions of the world series races so it is uh it seems difficult for him but uh yeah so i kind of agree on both sides i mean if he wants to go for it i think he can do it but uh on the other hand yeah he could have an amazing career he's clearly a little better suited to uh half distance and full distance it seems 
than for the short distance as an athlete. And the thing with it is, is there ever a course, like there's never going to be an Ironman World Championships course that suits Gustav Eden better than this Nice one. Like, mate, for example, I'm a huge fan of you. I'm a huge fan, fan of Max Newman. There's some guys I'd love to see compete. But from afar, I, I just... I just think if Gustav Eden trains for this race and and is on the start line, I mean, I think everyone, I think everyone's racing for second. That's how that's how like much ahead of everyone I think he is, and and how much this course suits him. And I, I don't know. I just think like imagine imagine being that good and not even starting the race because you're you're trying to do something else in in a year and a half's time from there. That's just yeah. That seems crazy to me. I think in his head he's probably he's. Uh convincing himself that he wants to go for Paris but I think at the same time he's always so very attracted by that Nice race because he grew up as a cyclist and for the same reasons as me he wants to go have fun on that bike course so yeah I think he's kind of pulled in two different directions in his head for that for sure and so you did list some other names and, and then sort of ask me who else you do you have in mind. So I will just I'll say some say some names and and get your opinions on on their chances this year and start with the guy I just said, Max Newman, coming fourth at last year's Ironman World Championships, obviously. Yeah, he's been exceptional lately in all his Ironman races. So uh provided he's uh and especially his bike actually. I don't know what happened with his bike. He's improved tenfold in his bike in the last year. Or the last eight months. It's like he got a motor in his bike all of a sudden. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> so I've I've had Max on the podcast a couple of times. Obviously, I'm Australian. He's uh he's an Australian guy, oh, yeah. so we've become uh, good friends through the podcast. Um and you should go back and listen to the first time he came on the podcast and listen to the so he's coached by his um his brother, Mitch Newman, um, who mm-hmm. has never coached another professional triathlete. Um you should go and hear some of the uh, the bike training that those guys were doing. It was like insane, Rudy. Like it's the most insane bit of training that I've heard on this podcast, I would say. Uh, and, and we've really? heard some pretty crazy stuff. Like the stories of what Cam Brown did w- was pretty crazy. Um, but yeah. I would say I would say Max Newman's cycling that he did was was equally as crazy. Like he was doing like Well, he was doing seven hundred Ks a oh, week. Man, he would do he would do multiple six to seven hour rides um o- over a weekend type thing. He's uh he was doing some insane stuff. So more more base volume? Volume, but he was doing it by from what he was saying, mate, he was also doing some really long interval um efforts, like hour long efforts and yeah, he just was doing lots. They were just they were doing a lot, a lot of bike training. That's like what I did yesterday. Four and a half hours with four hours at race pace into ninety minute run at race pace. Yeah. Do you think that do you think that we're past the days of being able to just like not train like that, not do really long, uh, high volume bike sessions, really like hard bike sessions? It seems like seems like everyone who's at the top is just doing a lot of bike training. I mean, if you're gonna race Ironmans, you definitely have to push the volume on the bike i mean i've for example been at about 19 hours of riding per week in the last last three four weeks in a row so that's pretty significant i was at 600 k's a week also in a couple of those weeks I, it was in the 10 days where i didn't run so to be fair but uh yeah i don't know to go back to max newman i'm not sure how he's on uh, the technical aspect 
But uh, overall, from a, just an Ironman strength point of view, yeah, he's definitely very up there. Yeah, no, he's technically very good too. Very, very good. Um, I, I would say, I would say, like if you looked at that group last year of like Christian, Max, um, Gustav, Magnus, uh, and Sam Laidlow, I would say that it's like I think that the four, like Magnus, is like the one who maybe isn't as good a bike handler, but I think those four are like I look at them as all pretty similar as each other. Maybe Christian not quite as good as the other three, but like Matt, that's what I'm what I'm trying to say is. Max is yeah. very good technically. Yeah, so he's definitely um, in the in the top three probably. What What about Joe Skipper? Yeah, I was thinking about him um, again. I don't I don't know exactly how he is in the technical aspect, but he would also be in a top five type thing. Because okay, he'll lose a bit on the swim, but he is very strong on the bike. But this course might not be as good for him because he is heavier. So his power to weight will be a little off compared to the flatter courses. But he has the power, right? So it's not like he would lose time. And then his run is also very solid. So, um, yeah, definitely another good guy to put in the mix. I also look at Joe as someone who is very good when the course has a lot of time in the TT position. He seems to He seems to be stronger than most people around him if it's big power in the bars. Whereas I don't know if he is quite as strong as other people around him if it's um long periods out of the TT bars, particularly uphill. Mm, yeah, I don't I, I think yeah, I would tend to agree, even though I don't really know, honestly. Yeah, your gut just sort of tells you that's true as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What what about um I, I think a name that, that a lot of people are throwing up this year because of the course is Patrick Lang. Yeah, he's um, well. His run is definitely exceptional, and on a flat course like that, if he's feeling good after the bike, he can definitely tear through that run. However, in the past, we have seen sometimes that he kind of stays in a group, maybe benefited a little from uh, group dynamics, especially we're seeing that in Kona. But also recently, I think he's also stepped up his bike game uh, a little. So I wouldn't anticipate him losing that much time on the bike, even though I think he would still, he will lose some time. So it all depends uh, how close he can be starting the marathon. But as as long as you're talking about Ironman distance, Patrick is uh, will definitely always be in the mix. I have a few more names for you, not too many, and we don't have to go too deep on all of them. But what mm. another name that a lot of people are throwing up, he's probably the most underrated triathlete on the planet, Leon che- Chevalier. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's very dangerous. <laughs> yeah, because he's uh, his swim is his weakness, but uh, he's extremely strong on the bike. Actually, as you said, pretty underrated. And then he can back it up, pretty solid marathon. But um, mainly the bike, I'd say, especially on a hilly course like that, he smashed uh, the long distance in Albuquerque last year. I remember seeing his watts or something about that. And uh, it was pretty exceptional what he did there. and uh, But no one really followed that race, so no one really knows. And then, well, he did win South Africa recently and uh, was very strong, I think, in both St. George and Kona, right, last year. And, uh, yeah, so he's definitely very dangerous, yeah, specifically for that bikes course. And he, he seems to know really how to, to handle his bike because he does ride a lot in uh, French Alps and 
courses like that, roads like that. And then in a similar vein of of underrated but but very strong, Florian Anger. Yeah, and I was going to continue with uh, Leon Chevalier with maybe a Clément Mignon type guy. Very similar as well. Who does live in Nice and knows those roads as well and has been very strong even on the flat courses. Um, who, who did you just say? Florian Anger. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I mentioned him earlier. Oh, did you? I think he could, he's, he could definitely be uh, as a German. He definitely, well, he also seems maybe like a type guy that's, that's really good at just even power on the flat road. But um, I can't remember. Was he even in Nice in 2019? Oh. I, I can't remember how he did there. But uh, And also, I don't know how he is technically, but usually Europeans are, are more or less fine technically. He did do the 70.3 Worlds in 2019. I reckon he came like 10th from memory. Uh, but he's a different yeah. athlete now than what he was then, I reckon. Like, I think after COVID, he was the guy that came back that was the most different. Like, I think he's uh, – before COVID, he was good. He, like, he had a decent year in 2019. He won a couple of races. I think he won his – maybe he won his first Ironman that year. Bar- yeah, I think it was Barcelona. Barcelona. Yeah. He won his first in like 750 or something. Yeah, but I still think he is – he wasn't as good pre-COVID as he was post-COVID. I think he used those years really well. The, the question I have about Florian is this might sound like um, super negative. It's not really intended to be because I have a lot of respect for how consistently at the front of races he is. But I almost feel like he, um, I almost feel like he's a guy who would struggle to win a really big race, like a world championships quality race, but I have a lot of confidence in him coming fifth in it. If you know what I mean? Yeah, I see what you mean. Because he's been very, he's just kind of like German, meticulous, yes, consistent. robotic. And it's almost like you miss the extra something, extra spark. A bit of risk. That would make you go for the win. Exactly. I could see what you mean. Exactly. Especially that, yeah, but also it's hard to believe in someone to really go for the win when your run is like his, which is very good but not the best. And it's kind of some, somewhat same with me, right? That's if my run was top notch, well then, well, yeah, you'd believe I could win most races. But then when you have a run that's slightly under than the best guys, it is difficult to, to really put it up out there unless you do something very special before. I look at you though, as someone who with 10 K to go, Oh, not 10 K to go 10 minutes to go. Uh, at the top of the the first climb would just go. Like if you're at the front of the race, I look at you as someone who would just say, fuck it and go and push huge watts across the top and then absolutely full send that that descent. Whereas I look at Florian as a guy who would just sit in and just conserve. Do you know what I mean? And that's why (laughs) I think you could come, I think you could come 25th at Nice or I think you could win it. Whereas I I think Florian will finish between second and eighth. And I'd be shocked if he's outside that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, in a way, yeah, it's like it's a, he's a sure sure bet for for a very solid position, but maybe not the win. Yeah, I mean, for me, tactics will be interesting to see what, what I want to do, but uh, I'll definitely want to go for it at one point. Uh, I mean, and and also that's it's a confidence that you kind of build throughout races to kind of have that confidence of okay, I'm here, I'm as good as anyone else. You know, we're all all born the same. There's no reason another athlete's better than me, and I have the confidence that I'm gonna go for it at one point. 
and really play all my cards and try to go for the win. So there's also that kind of confidence aspect to it. I got four more guys I want to ask you about, and I'm going to leave out your teammate, Colin Chartier. Um, I'm not going to make you talk about your teammate. He is the fifth who I would ask about, but the four, Alistair Brownlee. Um, yeah, he seems to have a lot of injuries recently, but, uh, if he can be at his best level, we know he's, uh, he can be competitive at the Ironman distance. He's proven it in, uh, Sweden last year, for example. Do you think the course suits him given that this was the same course, just a little bit shorter that he, uh, he sort of, um, I mean, dictated re- with yourself in 2019 at the 70.3 world championships? Yeah, I think he's proved there. I mean, he wasn't quite very precise on those downhills. He didn't really know them quite as well. And I was I was doing really good trajectories and going quite fast down the hill. And so he missed a few corners and completely went super wide out of some corners, which I would like to say we were not supposed to do. They said you might be disqualified if you pass the center line. So the whole downhill, I was making sure I didn't go over the center line. And the guys like him and other guys went over it many times but uh, that's just a side note i don't know what they're gonna do this year if they're gonna say the same thing which is kind of a horrible rule because it's like okay if i go over i might be disqualified the end of a whole year of work you know it's kind of there's no clear rule which is kind of tough to deal with especially with downhills like that where some roads don't even have lines i mean that false flat downhill i was mentioning where you're just tt'ing going really fast it's kind of like one and a half car width and you're kind of, yeah. And cutting the corners makes it way more safe essentially. Right. Cause you're going in a much more straighter line. So they're going to have to be clear about that. It's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard, Rudy, to be honest. Imagine if you went into a cycling race and told the guys, Hey, um, for this stage of the tour, which is a mountain stage on the descents, um, you're going to have to stay on the on like one side of the road and not cross the middle. Like that would literally that they would like. It's unthinkable. It's that ridiculous. It's it's just it's unsafe. It's um it's it's stupid. It's like that that doesn't make any yeah. sense. There's not one logical argument as to why that should happen. No, exactly, and it goes against any rule of downhill cycling you would ever learn or. It just doesn't, yeah, it doesn't make sense. But uh, I just hope they're cl- they're really clear about it. The problem is I've, I'm, I feel like it's going to be the same thing as 2019, honestly. Because I feel like they can't officially, because the, I think the road is not officially closed, fully closed. So they cannot officially say, okay, you can use the whole road. But then they're aware that in some of those corners, you're just going to have to, essentially. Especially when you can see the other side of the road. That's another ridiculous thing, mate. Like on on uh, on a like a technical course like that, the road has to be su- like it just has to be cut off. It has to be closed. You cannot have these descents right. ever having a car on it. You just can't. It's just no, the, yeah, the, you can't because that that would be a catastrophe, mate. The, it happens. It happens. People get hit by cars at Kona at the Ironman World Championships every single year. That cannot be something that's fucking happening in our sport, mate. This is a a company worth a lot of money they have the money to fully close off these roads and to make that happen and if they've got on a course where the government or the council or whoever it is that runs it 
can't promise them that, then they have to go somewhere else, mate. And especially if it's a descent down a mountain, like you cannot have a car at any point throughout that race go up the hill the opposite way. Like it doesn't matter if it's um, at a time they think is relative, relatively safe. That can't happen, mate. No. That, that can't happen. No, yeah, I don't think they're, yeah, no, I agree with you. It, it has to be very clear. Um, some some other names, the the last three, I'm gonna I'm gonna group these these two, um, obviously Cameron Worth and, and Lionel Sanders. Yeah, even though they have very different different uh, abilities on the bike, I, I wouldn't be worried about Cam uh, uh, whatsoever. I would I would about Lionel. Talk to me about that. I mean, Cam is riding Pro Tour races. He's technically very good. Um. Lionel would be the opposite. He would probably be among the worst in professional triathlon on uh, technical um, riding. Does that for you mean that you think Lionel can't win the race, but if Cam does prepare for it, he could be a factor? Uh, Probably, yeah. And then a name I'll throw up that I don't think he's going to do the race, but if he did and if he focused on it, I think could be a real th- real threat, is Frederick Funk. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about his name, but then right away in my head, I was like, well, he's not going to do Ironmans, this, at least not this year. I don't think so. So, But um, yeah, I'd agree with you. I think uh, his technical ability is probably pretty solid and uh, definitely has the watts. He's a smaller guy, so powered away, it should be quite good. Yeah, he'll have to hold on on the run if ever he if he was in that race. But he would definitely be in an off the front type of guy. My last question for you, Rudy, um, before we wrap up this episode, is about this race. Um, do you will you go into this race as like a lone wolf with with your own tactics and own plans to try and win win the race or? Will you get together with some guys who maybe you think you can beat in the run and say, hey, let's let's get together on the bike and, and let's attack this point and this point? And will you take sort of that, that, that approach to it or are you going into this one just with your own plans and, and, and you're not going to talk to anyone else about the race or your tactics into, into the race and you're going to keep them to yourself and, and play your cards when the time comes to play them? Yeah, I'd probably keep them to myself because – Whenever you try to do plans, in the end, they never pan out in the race situation. <laughs> Things always go different. You know, one of the guys is not there. One is having a bad day. The dynamic is completely different than what you thought it was. It's better to just stick to your own guns and just kind of be concentrated on your own race. So, yeah, that that's what I'm going to do. Awesome, Rudy. Well, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks so much for coming on uh, and thanks for delaying that extra hour for me. Uh, it's actually, it's Easter morning here, which I forgot about when I when I planned recording this podcast oh, yeah. with you. It's already Sunday for you? Yeah, it's Sunday morning and so everyone's uh, doing yeah. Easter eggs and that and, and I'm talking to you, which to be honest, I'd much, <laughs> much prefer to be doing. So, uh, <laughs> thanks for jumping on, mate. I, I really appreciate it and uh, I'm sure we'll talk throughout the year. Um, I'll be over there in Nice, so I'll probably get you on as, as someone who yeah, I and- think is going to be a massive favourite. Um, yeah, and I don't want to jinx myself because I'm not qualified yet. So uh, we're talking about Nice for most of this episode, but uh, I got to go qualify first in I have, two weeks. I have <laughs> full confidence in you qualifying it. If you don't qualify it here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something really blunt. Like for the level of athlete you are, which is world class, 
if you don't qualify at Texas, then you just you shouldn't be at, at Nice anyway, should you? Really? Oh, uh, it's exactly no. I've already told that to my friends. I mean, if I don't qualify, I just don't deserve it. So yeah, literally, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And yeah. you wouldn't say that about everyone, but for you, that's definitely true. Um, I, I've already yeah, I've already got your name penciled down for Nice. So yeah, that's uh, that it, that will be awkward if you if you don't qualify. Are, are you planning on going? Yep. So um, this isn't public yet, but um, I'm going over there. Uh, I'm going to do like a week's worth of podcast in the lead up. So every night the plan is to hire out a little venue um, and do like live podcasts every night. So I'll get one or two people in, maybe even do them together, um, have a little live crowd every night in the lead up. Um, so yeah, it'd be awesome if you were one of those blokes doing it because mate, a lot of, honestly, a lot of people might not be talking to you about you like as a, as a threat to win that race. But I think that's, uh, that's that you, you will be the guy going most under the radar, um, on that course in, in those, in, in that, in that part yeah. of the world. So hopefully I, I can get in all that good work till then and, yep. and feel like I'm in the shape for that for sure. But also. I do get on the radar more when it's me specifically. True. But I'm 100% going to want to be on the radar when it's not Nice, right, as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, like I, like I was saying, I'll be talking about you that week and making sure people know that you're you're a threat. So, um, it, yeah, it would be awesome if um, if you're around that week and available. I'd love to have you have you on for one of those live podcasts, um, maybe even with Colin if, if he's over there um, or, or with, yeah. Mich- or with yeah, Mikhail that, if that he's over fun. there. We'll, um, we'll tee it up. That would be awesome. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Awesome, Rudy. Well, enjoy the rest of your night, mate. Have a good night's sleep and and a good training day tomorrow. And uh, I'm excited to follow along for Texas. Sweet. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. See you, mate. Bye. Bye. So something that a lot of you might not know is that I coach a handful of triathletes myself. I've been in triathlon for over 15 years. I've been to university and done exercise sports science. I've dabbled in racing at the highest level myself. And I've obsessed over this sport my whole life. And something that I now do with all of my new athletes when they start with me is get them to grab a pair of form goggles. In my opinion, they are a training tool every single age group and professional triathlete should have. The real-time data you get while you swim is the equivalent to your run and ride GPS computer in terms of importance for me. And no one trains without those now. But a lot of people still don't use form goggles. That's why we see people like Christian Blumenfeld and Gustav Eden and Lionel Sanders using them in their training. They see it like I do, that they're just a, like they're a non-negotiable if you want to be your best. Unfortunately, your wearable GPS watch is almost completely useless in the pool, except to maybe look back on after the session. But even then, it's hard to get it exactly right because you sort of have to click start and stop and it's often not super accurate and we can like cheat ourselves a little bit. If you train for triathlon and you don't already use form goggles, You just don't know what you're missing out on. And if you do use them, then you'll know what I mean when I say you literally will never go back to not using them once you start. The same way you won't ever go back to running or riding with your GPS or power device once you start doing it, especially if you want to be the best triathlete you can be. So head to form.com or just Google form to find their website and buy yourself a pair. Use the code HTT15 for 15% off your goggles. It also supports the show. But... Honestly, I'd tell you, my athletes, anyone that trains for triathlon to get them, even if I didn't have any affiliation with them, the same way I bought them for myself. That's how important I think they are if, you're, if you want your swim to be the best it can possibly be. All the details for that are in the show notes.